Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Windrush, 75 years on, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Van der Viporska, the CEO of the Black Equity Organisation, and Maurice McLeod, an anti-racism campaigner. Both are second generation Windrush descendants. First, though, a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Find out how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well, our new film on Byline TV with John Sweeney. It's called The Eastern Front, Terror and Torture in Ukraine, revealing details of Russian war crimes. You can watch it now over at byline.tv. In June 1948, the HMT Empire Windrush set sail from Jamaica, carrying 802 people to Tilbury in Essex. Along with their suitcases, they carried dreams of a better life in what they had been raised to think of as the mother country. It wasn't the first migrant ship from the Caribbean to arrive in the UK, but it was the largest and most famous, a former troop ship which gave its name to a generation of willing workers coming to a country looking to rebuild itself after World War II. Between 1948 and 1971, more than half a million people arrived, but the reception they received wasn't always friendly, to say the least. They faced endemic racism, and even in recent years, the hostile environment created by then-Home Secretary Theresa May led to a scandal in which scores of people who had given their working lives to this country were deported or denied benefits to which they were entitled. It's also now emerged that hundreds of long-term sick and mentally ill people from the Windrush generation were sent back to the Caribbean between the 1950s and the early 1970s. Let's reflect on this now with Morris and Vanda. Vanda, I mean, it, it, it's quite hard, isn't it, to think of the expectations that those previous generations would have had and the mindset they would have had when they arrived in the UK. Yeah, and I think, you know, what we have to emphasise here is that our parents and our grandparents were British citizens. You know, they were brought up to honour the Queen, to revere Britain. They were brought up in, a, in an English education system. You know, they just happened to be in the Caribbean. Um, and we all know how we got there. And so it was such a shock for them to come. You know, it wasn't the weather. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't any of those things. It was how different England, this mighty, amazing country that they'd been brought up to think was at the centre of the empire that ruled half the world, you know, the empire on which the sun never set. This mighty England was actually quite tawdry, was actually full of people, working class people who were trying to scrape to get by, was not going to welcome them. And so it was such a psychological shock. And they were coming here to do their best, to play their part, to be part of society. And to have that huge slap in the face, not just from the people surrounding them, not just when they saw the signs that we all know about on the doors, not just from people, but from the state, from the government, from the institutions, from the places they were working with. You know, a lot of, you know, my family were, were in nursing. A lot of people were and in the NHS. 
And they were cleaning out the sluices. You know, they were doing the jobs that the English people didn't want to do. We are proud, as anybody is. You know, people were coming over. You see how well they were dressed on the, on the Empire Windrush. You see they were coming over to, to be their best and do their best for a country that, quite frankly, ever since they arrived, has really treated them with contempt. Maurice, you and I have spoken off mic about your mum's arrival in this country. Just tell us some of what was in her mind when she came here. Yeah. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Vanda. I, I just want to really echo what Dr. Wanda's, Wanda's just said there, that that my mum, you know, I spoke to her recently about her memories of coming up and why she came to Britain and what she thought when she arrived. And it's exactly as you described. She was brought up in this, you know, English system. She looked to the mother country. She thought she was coming to this incredible place. Um, and then she got off and, and, and she tells me she was shocked to see poor white people sort of sweeping the streets. She didn't have a concept of the white working class or, or poor people being white because this education that she'd had, this colonial education, had, had taught her nonsense, basically. So I said, did you feel lied to? And she sort of said, yeah, uh, you know, it was not what I was expecting at all. And then the way she was treated by the other nurses, by patients, by her neighbours, by everyone, was, was actually pretty horrendous. But this generation of very upright, very quintessentially, I mean, I don't really like the term, but quintessentially British, very, you know, very proper. All I knew about mum was putting starch on her uniform and getting ready to go to work the next day when someone had spat at her the day before. And she, I never knew anything about it and she never made a fuss and, and it wasn't something that she really wrote back home about because I think there was a bit of embarrassment that they felt that they'd been lied to and had been a bit duped by by Britain they, they'd been conned so so, mm. so yeah real mixed feelings I think for for people like my mum when they they got here there was a pride of wow we've made this journey we've you know it was really brave to jump on a ship and and or, or a plane and go to the other side of the world to better yourself it's a really brave thing I think I think we could do with remembering that at the moment as well by the way and I'm thinking what was in the minds of the people who were here in this country the people who were arriving from the Caribbean were people whose own ancestors in most cases anyway had been taken to the West Indies on slave ships so was that part of what was playing in the minds of the people who were giving them such a a poor reception that they saw people coming from a part of the world that they associated with slavery and who they therefore saw as somehow lesser than them i'm not sure if it was specifically that i think it was just good old-fashioned racism and, and racism that was supported by the state as well you know there was there was no other messages that they were getting that that these were um as as they were to be honest some of the most ambitious the, the the you know the people that were able to you know afford a ticket to uh, you know which is no small thing afford a ticket and come to to Britain were uh, you know my mum wasn't particularly poor within her family she was the lucky one who was able to do this but that's not the the message that poor people in Britain were receiving all they got were there's this group of black people who are coming over and who are going to be different and you know, listen to different music, eat different things, and they're going to be a problem, and they're going to take your jobs, and they're going to make your, they're going to put pressure on housing, they're going to make all these things that that you rely on, they're going to make them harder because these people are poor and and, and are going to take up that space. 
And so not surprisingly, there was a tension. I think that tension over time, that tension breaks down with proximity. The, the, the communities that live closest together over time are the, are the communities that where that just isn't uh, the case. But certainly initially in, in places like Notting Hill and Brixton, or whatever, there was loads of tension and it was it was really hard for the communities coming over and the communities that they were coming over and, and integrating into. Yeah, I would echo that. And I think, you know, from my personal experience, me, my grandfather was Polish, came over, you know, fought in the war, came over. And there were people next door saying, you know, look at that pole, even a pole can afford a car, you know, and he faced racism after having the great sacrifice that the poles made, and along with the Czechs and others. Um, and that wasn't recognised in the same way. And interestingly enough, there were poles on the Windrush as well. So the Windrush for me is really <laughs> a reflection of my heritage there. But also, I think it is that classic divide and rule, isn't it? You know, when when communities are coming over, there's a vested interest to say, oh, look over there, that migrant trying to, you know, get your job or the absolute classic stereotype of, oh, black men are going to steal our women. All of these things, you know, that we heard and that we saw were just deployed against a different range of people. And I think when you mentioned slavery, Adrian, I don't think that was in people's, in ordinary people's minds, in a sense, but I think what was in people's minds and that we still have today, and these are the structural issues that we're facing, is a sort of almost inbuilt feeling of superiority, that white people are superior and therefore black people have been enslaved, black people are from somewhere else, and that people, you know, there is this hierarchy of race in a sense. And I think, you know, we know that's still that's still a factor because we see it in the fact that, you know, black people are disproportionately more likely to have poorer health, poor worse jobs, all of the things that we know about. And that's due to that thinking, really, which is just endemic in, in everything that we see in terms of institutions and structures. And I guess your own personal history, Vanda, points to the fact that when people do live and work next to each other, relationships develop and people do ultimately get on. But at the official level, we're talking in the middle of the last decade about the hostile environments and about the Windrush scandal. So at the level at which ordinary people can learn to understand that these differences are not as great as are sometimes made out and that we can get on and live together, at an official level, that deeply embedded racism still seems to persist. Yes, if we're talking about structural racism, which is obviously a much, much bigger conversation, of course it still exists because, unfortunately, um, every time we sort of seem to have come to a, almost a consensus that, right, this is something that we acknowledge and we're going to tackle, we seem to make a step backwards. We, it happened a couple of years ago with the, the CRED report, which claimed to find there was no evidence of, of institutional racism in, in, in Britain. If we don't acknowledge something, we can't do any, anything about it. And so we can come back decade after decade. We can do the sort of small things and we can do sort of window dressing. But if we don't truly acknowledge the structural issues and, and be brave enough to, to, to face them, which, which does take bravery, it takes unpicking some of the establishments that, that we have. And that's, that's a tough thing. But if we don't do that, we, we keep coming back to the same place, as Dr. Wander said. If you don't pay attention, particularly to anti-Black racism, if it's not something that you build into your thinking, you can guarantee down the line that, that it will be embedded and, and we won't have tackled it. And that's where we keep coming back to, I'm afraid. 
one of the key ways in identifying this is to think about, you know, who are the people at the top? Who are the people making decisions? Who are the civil servants? Who are the people that are making the decisions that affect people's lives? And nine times out of 10, you will see that they are predominantly middle-class, white, well-educated people who may not have any experience of the issues that they're dealing with. So, you know, people are making decisions without any information about what, how, how those decisions are going to be implemented. And so because they're working from their own default position, they're not thinking about it. And when we look at the police, we can see that institutional racism playing out. But we can also see the institutional misogyny. We can see the institutional homophobic and biphobia. And I think, you know, for us as black people, we've been saying a lot of this stuff for decades And now that it's coming out and other people are being involved and it's affecting other people, they're saying, oh, yeah, you know, there's a problem with the police or there's a problem with education. And it's frustrating for us because we've been saying this, but it's also a point at which now I think we can just rally so many people together to say, look, we need to look at these institutions because they are not doing even a simple thing like an equality impact assessment. If you just look at one of your decisions and you say, how is this going to affect black people? How is this going to affect women? How is this going to affect LGBT plus people? If you just take the time to do that and don't assume you've got the answers to everything, then you'll you'll avoid a whole load of the problems that have been happening. But then we have to ask ourselves, especially in terms of the home office, a hostile environment can only be a deliberate policy. This wasn't a policy that happened by accident because people didn't think about it. It was a policy that happened because people were deliberately thinking that they wanted to get numbers down. They put the vans on the streets. They caused people to lose their jobs. And when we think about Windrush coming back to the scandal, you know, you take someone like Glenda Caesar, who for 10 years had no recourse to benefits, couldn't work, got into debt, 10 years of her life. Imagine the absolute mental stress of that. Or Michael Braithwaite, you know, doing work in a school, working with SEND pupils, really contributing to society. And I'm not saying that, you know, only people who contribute should be considered here, but these people really doing what the Windrush generation did. And then, you know, having to go through the absolute trauma that they've been through. And so, you know, this was a deliberate policy. Yeah, absolutely. It really annoys me, to be honest, when I hear people sort of saying oh this happened by accident or oh, it was such a yeah we're talking about the Windrush scandal sort of su- suggesting that it was a mistake lots of us were campaigning at the time about about this hostile environment it was deliberately racist it was the deli- you know the idea and 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 we're doing it now again the idea that that what we need to do is get numbers down as low as possible and show that we're we're not an inviting place to be and that if you do that you're gonna you're going to mop people up who've been here for decades as as many as the Windrush people have I I, I don't call them migrants as as I said they were part of the British Empire my mum came here in sixty two two years after Jamaican independence but her whole life was brought up as part of the British Empire she was as British as a Scottish person so. The idea that these migrants were coming in and doing something wrong, or these migrants maybe uh, were mopped up in by accidents in in some action of the British government, is is nonsense. It was a deliberate ploy, and the fact that they didn't consider what would happen to this particular group of people is is just as Dr. Wonder says. It's it's because of who's in the room, who's doing the thinking when policies are thought out in the first place. I, I'm afraid, and and. I doubt that things are very much different in terms of who's in the room and who's making those decisions now. I doubt that things have changed that much. I think that's a really interesting insight, Van der. Murray's talking there about people who 
grew up in the Caribbean, thinking of themselves as British. This goes right back to what I was getting at at the start of the conversation, that to them, they were simply living in a part, one part of a country. And by coming to England, they were coming to another part of the same country because it was all the British Empire. But that's not how people on the island of Britain saw it, is it? And just that divergence of, of what's in people's heads. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's if you look at France, you know, some of the Caribbean islands are département of France. They are officially a part of France. And if you are in, I think, Martinique or somewhere, then you as a citizen can go and study in France. You have all of the rights that a French person has. And that was the case for the Caribbean communities, for the for the islands. But it wasn't, as you said, what people in the UK or in, in England expected. And I think what we have to also do when we look at this is to think about how were other parts of the Commonwealth, well, what is now the Commonwealth treated? You know, did we treat people in Australia and New Zealand the same way? Did when that hostile environment came, you know, were we looking to deport New Zealanders and, Aus and Australians? You know, this is we can really see where the roots of the racism in this in this issue are. So, you know, it is. It is that divergence of we expected and we've been brought up in this way. And then when we get to the mother country, the attitudes are completely different. But, you know, we know that, as, as we've discussed before, it is those brave people who make that journey to go halfway across the, the world. And don't forget, a lot of them left their children behind. You know, a lot of them came over and then later came, uh, sent their children over or weren't able to go home. And of course, when we think about people going home, some people didn't go home for a long time. And when they went home, they found a different country to the one that they left. And then you have that feeling of being, like, being, you know, you're not sort of English enough to be English and you've left the Caribbean and you're not Caribbean enough to be Caribbean. And that puts people in a dilemma. And then, you know, people like me who are brought up in, in the UK who feel that connection to Barbados, for example, but haven't spent the time there to really feel that culture and have those relationships with my grandfather and my family, you know, and there is that sense of longing. There is that sense of not really knowing whose you are, not who you are, but whose you are in a sense, which I think, you know, contributes to how people feel as we go through the generations. You know, some people have been brought up partially in the Caribbean and then come to the UK. Others haven't. And we need to find our heritage and our histories as well to know who, who we are. I touched on slavery earlier because I think at some level it still plays out in British mindsets. I think it's linked to a refusal to acknowledge some of the less palatable truths of empire. And I just wonder what your reflections both are on that now, particularly as some nations in the Caribbean are calling for reparations for slavery. As you say, the, the CARICOM nations, have, I think they've got put together a 10-point plan calling for, for reparations. It it feels like a no-brainer. It feels it feels really hard to... to yeah, I don't really understand how Britain in particular um, and, and other, other European nations, how they can argue that the reparations aren't really due. I mean, the amount of wealth that was extracted from the air and on the backs of black people is, is, is undisputable from the Tate Gallery to the whatever. It's all stuff, money that was made from the backs of our ancestors for no money. The French have only just finished paying for the Haitian Revolution. We've only just finished giving the slaveholders 
back their compensation for owning my ancestors. And so the idea that that there isn't a massive debt is ridiculous. Caricom are asking for a really simple, like the, the first, first off, a formal apology, which seems, yeah, it always seems like a small thing to me. When I hear people saying, we demand an apology, it thinks, well, yeah, what's that going to do? But the fact that that hasn't even happened is actually quite shocking. If, you, if you're not even sort of acknowledging and, and apologising, then then you're nowhere near starting to to make recompense. And then, But then, you know, you look at how we treat various parts of the world in terms of trade, how we treat them in terms of debt, all sorts of things where the West undoubtedly needs to make recompense. But it starts with an apology, and I, I, I don't really hear us even approaching that closely. For us, it's personal. And we know, I mean, I know from tracing my ancestors, um, I can trace my ancestors back to a particular plantation in Barbados, which means I can trace who owned that plantation and I can trace those ancestors down. And so for me, it's about A, knowing that we can do that because many Black people have been told that we can't trace our families and that we cannot find out who we are, where we've come from. So that's an important thing today. And, you know, the announcement that the BBC made about discovering the documents that proved that people were being shipped back to the Caribbean in the 50s and 60s that we, we talked about are absolutely essential. And the essential part of that is that we're looking in the archives, that we're looking in the records, that history is just not being examined by white people, basically. So for me, it's personal. And I think for all of us, it is. And I think the other thing that um, Russ alluded to as well is the fact that up until 2015, I was paying my taxes to fund the borrowing that the government made when they repaid the slave owners when the people who were enslaved were so-called released. You know, we all know it didn't happen like that. So I've actually paid money that has contributed to those people who owned my ancestors. And I think that is a really, really awful state of affairs. And I think, you know, it's great. And I'm going to I'm gonna plug Barbados. I'm going to plug Mia Motley because, you know, she's been absolutely wonderful in spearheading this and saying, actually, you know, there are things that needed that need to be done, whether it's on trade, whether it's on education, whether it's on reparations. But don't let anybody tell you that, you know, we can't do this because it's too complicated, because it's really, really quite simple. Great to speak to you both. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Dr. Vanda Viporska and Maurice McLeod as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get details about how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. This has been a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. We'll see you all again very soon. But for now, thanks for listening. Cheers now. Bye-bye.